Let's uh, let's just bow our hearts, shall we? Well, Father, once again, we thank you that we can come and study your word together. We thank you, as your word tells us of itself, that it is living and powerful. That we're not just reading words by people from long ago. We're reading something that is applicable now and as powerful now as when it was written. And that, Lord, these things have real impact and import into our lives today. So, Father, please just take away any preconceptions, Lord, any barriers to us receiving that which you have for us. Lord, we just want to be here this morning with open hearts and, Lord, ears that are ready to hear. Um, So, Lord, speak to us, we pray. Lord, give me the wisdom and the words just to articulate the things you've laid upon my heart. And, Lord, help us to grow together in knowledge and grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're carrying on in our study of the book of Revelation. We looked last week at Revelation chapter 17, um, and we're going to be moving on. The second part, really, of that is in Revelation 18, which we'll look at this morning. But really, just again, to start with a reminder that the book of Revelation is tying together so many things from the Old Testament. Uh, it's been said before, you know, that in the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and in the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You know, we've got over 800 illusions in just the 404 verses in Revelation, to the Old Testament. So there's almost two illusions per verse are drawing from things of the Old Testament. So as we study these chapters, Revelation 17 and 18, it's also very helpful to read parallel passages in the Old Testament, and we find them in Jeremiah 50 and 51, and also in the book of Isaiah, chapter 13 and 14. And we'll be quoting a few things from there this morning. Now, again, after the flood, Satan launched a more subtle threefold strategy Satan, we'd already seen, was trying to destroy mankind. We mentioned already this morning that Satan loves to destroy mankind. That's what he wants to do. He hates man, hates the fact that man was given the earth and so on. And Satan obviously usurped man's position as become the god of this world. But because of what happened at the time of the flood, he didn't succeed in destroying mankind. God, by sending the flood, by saving Noah, preserved the human race. Well, Satan then said about this, it's incredibly ingenious plan, if I may put it that way. The first thing was to set up a world government. And that was really the intention was to manipulate mankind against the seed, against God's promised line down to Jesus and ultimately then what's happened since. We're talking about the church and everything else. We'll mention this in a while. But the second thing was false religion. This also was really to deceive mankind into following a false seed or a false way and then there was a seek and destroy plan, if I remember to put it this way, where there was really a, a, a targeted threat to annihilate Israel, who were the ones that God had clothed, or, or sorry, the way that God had clothed the seed of the woman. We looked at that when we were studying in chapter 12 of Revelation. So this threefold plan that Satan launches on the world, and we'll talk a bit more about those things in just a moment, but I just want to give you a, a couple of highlights. Now, this is drawn very much from the book, Two Babylons, we've got some copies of it at the back there. Uh, it's a really good book in terms of the information. It's not the kind of, it's not bedtime reading, it's not something you'll, you'll read and go to, go to bed with a warm fuzzy feeling. Um, but it's incredible. The way that, uh, Alexander Hislop has linked these things is so thoroughly researched, um, historically. We, we've, we've got Noah, and we can take, trace the, the kings and queens of this country back to Noah. I mean, there's no, I mean, Bill Cooper does that in After the Flood, and again, we've got that at the back there. Um, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, you've got to appreciate that at that point, they're the only people on the earth. The earth has just been uh, destroyed effectively through the flood. Noah and his children come off the ark. These children, Noah and so on, they live to great ages in comparison with, with what we have today. 
It's no surprise that people would hold them in very high regard. So Shem, we find there's various legends about this individual. He becomes also known in various other cultures as Hercules. Ham, we'll talk about in a moment. Japheth becomes known as Jupiter. These characters become, over the the coming years, as these stories are passed down, you can imagine them getting together whenever families met uh, festivals or holidays or whatever and talking about these legends and these stories they'd heard. You know, there's flood legends in every culture around the world. And no doubt as these families started spreading out across the world and started talking about these things, they would talk about the sons of Noah and their accomplishments and what they did and how the world was repopulated and things after the flood. Now, there's some things to mention. Shem, we find from these historical records we have, fought against giants, which is interesting because we know after the flood there were giants as well. We're told that in Genesis 6. He's also referred to as the Lamenter. It's an interesting title. Clearly Shem was a godly man who just started to see the wickedness again after the flood starting to come to the fore. You, you recognize these names from Greek mythology, Roman mythology. They worship these gods. It's not, you know, I don't know if you ever stop to think why people worshipped or got into some of the mythology that we read. If you ever look at Greek mythology or, you know, the Roman gods or whatever, how do intelligent people that can create and design and do all sorts of things, I mean, look at the Roman army, how accomplished it was. How could, I mean, were they really so stupid as to believe things that we would look at now and laugh at? No. These things were based in historical facts. They got distorted, they got twisted, but there was real historical basis to all of these things. Other names you might know from um, various history things you may have looked at in the past. Cush, the son of Ham. Well, one of the titles is, is Bacchus, or Bar Cush, uh, is the son of Nimrod, his son. This is one of his titles. There's another Roman god under that name comes from this. But Cush himself is known by a variety of different names. Now, Cush is the one that's seemingly responsible for the Tower of Babel and the confusion that comes from that. One of the names he has is Hermes, simply means son of Ham. Uh, also Mercury or Vulcan. Vulcan, you may from history remember Vulcan and the hammer and so on. Well, his, another title of Vulcan is the divider. Well, that makes sense because Cush, responsible for the Tower of Babel, is the dividing of tongues. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You've then got another, other names. Bel, this is a name that you come across in the Old Testament. And Bellus, also referred to as the confounder. Once again, it's because of Cush's rebellion against God that led to the Tower of Babel and the confounding of languages. Also, Cush, which is where we get the word chaos from. I'll show you that in a moment. Cush is also known as the God of Confusion. Well, again, going back to the Tower of Babel, all these things have real historical roots. Nimrod. Then, as I say, Bacchus, the son of son of Cush, um, we talked last time, he married Semiramis, and she concocts his plan when he dies. Seemingly he's killed by Shem, um, but when he dies, Semiramis concocts his story that she's pregnant with the reincarnation of Nimrod, and so becomes the worship of mother and child. Her child becomes named as Tammuz. Now, she's known by various different titles in various different cultures. Uh, Rhea, Sibel, Diana. Um, you remember Diana of the Ephesians. It's referenced in the book of Ephesians and so on in the book of Acts. Um, uh, Artemis, Ninus, Kronos. These are titles for Nimrod now. Ninus, Kronos, Saturn, um, Bacchus and so on. So I just want to show you that there's real historical basis for so much of the mythology that's sprung up. It's not just strange stories that somebody invented. Let me just read to you some of the things Alexander Hislop says in the book. He says, Cush is generally represented as having been a ringleader in the great apostasy. 
Kush is the son of Ham, or was, was Hermes or Mercury, for Hermes is just an Egyptian synonym for the son of Ham. Now, Hermes was the great original prophet of idolatry, for he was recognized by the pagans as the author of their religious rites. Goes on and says, Hygienius, another historian, shows that he, as Cush, was known as the great agent in that movement which produced the division of tongues. For many ages, men lived under the government of Jove or Jehovah, without cities and laws, and all speaking one language. But after that, Mercury interpreted the speeches of men, whence an interpreter is called hermeneutics. So that's, we have that word even in our study of the Bible. If you're trying to understand the, the original uh, basis of the text, we look at hermeneutics as a form of study, and it's derived from this word and from this name. The same individual just, uh, distributed the nations, then discord began. Another quote from Alexander Hislop, he says, Mercury then, or Hermes, or Cush, the son of Ham, was the divider of the speeches of men. He, it would seem, had been the ringleader in the scheme for building the great city and tower of Babel. He carries on, Bel signified the confounder. And to this meaning of the name of the Babylonian Bel, there is a very distinct allusion in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 2, where it said, Bel is confounded which is almost a play on words. It's saying the confounder is brought to confusion. So the one who's responsible for confounding all these things is themselves brought to confusion. It says that Cush was known to pagan antiquity under the very character of Bel, the confounder, a statement of Ovid very clearly proves. Quoting another historian, he says, The ancients called me chaos. Now, first, this decisively shows that chaos was known not merely as a state of confusion, but as the god of confusion, chaos is just one of the established forms of the name of Cush or Cus or Cush. Isn't it interesting that we have the word chaos? We talk about chaos. The very root of that word comes from Cush, who was responsible for the Tower of Babel and the confusion that came from it. It's so interesting when you start to join these dots together from a historical perspective. Another name of Cush was Vulcan, and I said Vulcan's hammer. Jeremiah 51, 23, there's an allusion to that. He says, how is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken? He's speaking of the judgment on Babylon because of all these things. Uh, another name of Cush was Bel, and he says, Bel is confounded. Merodach is broken in pieces. Again, another reference to this judgment. Regarding Nimrod, this is Cush's son who really set up the first one world government. He said it stated that he was, by the command of a certain king, that this ringleader in apostasy was put to death. Who could this be? Who was so determinedly opposed to the host of heaven? Who who then uh, was most likely to heed the opposition to the apostasy from the primitive worship? If Shem was at that time alive, as beyond question he was, who so likely is he? Basically, the point is that Shem, Shem, it seems, was responsible for trying to put a stop to the things that Nimrod was doing. Okay, let's just come back to that point we started on looking at this threefold stratagem. So again, the first part was to create a world government. The purpose of this is to control mankind. You know, it's interesting that originally God didn't have governmental systems established. Everybody was responsible for their own lives, their own family, providing for their own produce and everything else. It's only when we get to the time of the Tower of Babel and onwards from that with Nimrod that we start to see a centralization. And the moment that happens, suddenly people lose their skills. We've seen it even in our own world, in our own days. This country used to be fairly self-sufficient. But what's happened is we've sold things overseas. We now import stuff from other countries that we once produced ourselves. 
So now we're dependent upon them. And the whole thing starts to become so money-centered and power-centered. And this is, of course, what Satan wanted to do. Rather than people being, in a sense, autonomous, managing their own lives, it was them and God. Satan, by using this idea of these governments bringing everything together, starts to set up this power system. And everybody then starts to base things upon materialism, the acquisition of wealth and power. And we've seen that grow and accumulate through the ages. But of course that was halted at Babylon. But it's being set up again in the days in which we live. And we talked quite a bit about that last week, looking at what's going on in Europe and just drawing some of those uh, dots together. The second thing, as we said already, and this is really what we're going to be focusing on this morning, is this creation of a one world religion to deceive man. And really what we've got is a corrupt tree with many branches. I mean, Satan was clever because he didn't go for something that was so radically different that people would reject it. I mean, the whole basis of a counterfeit is that it's so close to the original that it's hard to tell the difference. And that's what he's done. And yet we've then got so many different versions. Interestingly, even that one an article I was looking at last night on the BBC website was talking about different religions. And it said about the fact that there's so many similarities. And the implication was, why can't they all work together? The third part, as we said, was that attack, specific attack on Israel to try and wipe out and destroy Israel. We've talked about that previously. We looked at that very much in chapter 12. Satan has failed on that front. But it still won't give up until the time of the second coming. So there's going to be a one world government. That's what the Bible says very clearly. There's also going to be a one world religious system that is going to embrace all faiths. Now again, this is interesting because what's happening is that people who are unwilling to let go of the things they hold on to are starting to be ostracized. We're starting to be referred to as extremists. Now, of course, that's a term that we find is used to terrorists sometimes, but we start to lump in these words like fundamentalists and so on. You know, it's really just a, it's a word game that's being played because there's nothing wrong with being a fundamentalist. You know, I don't know if you thought about it, a maths teacher is a fundamentalist. They stick to the fundamentals. You know, they, they can't move the goalposts and say, well, actually, two plus two equals five. They're a fundamentalist. A football referee has to be a fundamentalist. They have to stick to the fundamentals of the game. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. So there's nothing wrong with being a fundamentalist. The issue is, what are those fundamentals? And if the fundamentals are bad, the things that you hold on to and believe, well then, that's a separate issue. But there's nothing wrong intrinsically with being a fundamentalist. But it's become a word that's used to describe somebody that's dangerous. And of course, anybody that is not willing to, to yield and to lay aside the fundamentals of their own belief, accept everybody else and so on, is now being seen as being divisive and dangerous. Well, Revelation 17 foretells the destruction of this religious system that has always existed throughout history, has exerted enormous political sway over the governments of the world. And again, it is being drawn together into one world religion. But ultimately, the governments of the world are going to grow tired of her and are going to destroy her. And that's what we saw very much last week, the, the, the building up to this destruction. That will make the way then for finally the worship of Antichrist. As all religion is done away with except for the worship of Antichrist himself. Now chapter 18 is therefore going to deal with and record that final destruction of Babylon. It's really been one of the longest running dramas in scripture right from the time of Babel throughout the history of the world. So many different tangents and things the devil has used to try and keep people from the truth. 
As I said, it began literally in Babylon, in Iraq, and seemingly it's destined to end there. We'll look at that in a bit more detail in a moment. Um, but this really has been the mother of all deceptions throughout history, to try and just keep people from the truth. Now, we saw judgment last week upon this this woman as she's portrayed. Uh, the title is Mystery of Babylon the Great. Again, something that's spiritual or mystical. The Hebrew word Babylon comes from uh, the root confusion. And then great, in Greek it's mega, so it's just huge. And as we said last time, really, the title is huge spiritual confusion. And that's what's been sown throughout the world. Now we talked last time also a little bit about the timing of these things. We've got our seven year tribulation that is prophesied in numerous passages in scripture, but Daniel chapter 9 being one of the key ones. Um, we've got divided into two, three and a half year periods. Again, book of Revelation makes that clear. That we've got the beginning of sorrows and then the great tribulation. This is where God is really bringing warning to man that judgment is coming and although things start getting bad, God gives opportunity for man to repent. Finally, we get to this kind of cut-off point, somewhere around the halfway point, and then God's wrath is poured out on the earth. But this church, this religious system, whatever you want to refer to it as, will rule and have power and influence for, through the first three and a half years. So all of the existing religions of the world will somehow be forced to merge into this one religious system. And then finally, at this point, the kings of the earth, the ten kings specifically, should I say, um, are going to end up destroying Babylon, they will get fed up with her influence and, and so on. Ten of, uh, of those ten kings, three of them will be subdued directly by Antichrist, but they'll all end up serving under him. Just a couple of mentions again as to why it has to be the first three and a half years, because sometimes people think this is the latter part of the... Because Revelation 17 and 18 occur later in the book, people think chronologically it must occur towards the end. It's not. It's, it's one of those kind of like flashbacks, if you like, and John is taken back to the beginning. Well... Firstly, it's the ten kings who destroy her, and they don't really come to power until halfway through. Trade during the sea is impossible, and yet we're told that the merchants of the sea will see her destruction. Antichrist also will be worshipped for the last three and a half years, so she can't be. So there's a number of kind of key reasons. The other thing just to mention again, we, took, we touched on this briefly last week. Some people think we've got two accounts here. They think the Revelation 17 is a, a destruction and judgment upon a religious Babylon, and that chapter 18 is the destruction of political Babylon. They see all kind of two separate things being dealt with, but it's not the case. The theme of both these chapters is the judgment of this religious system, or the great harlot as she's portrayed. Chapter 17 gives us her description, and that's what we looked at last time, and this chapter gives us her destruction. The chapter breaks weren't actually included until the 12th century. So, we asked the question as we got to the end of the study last time, is this individual the Roman Catholic Church? Is that this harlot that's being portrayed? And the conclusion is that, no, it's not the Catholic Church, although the photo fit fits so well, and there's a good reason for that, we commented that the Roman Catholic Church did not start or originate abominations. Nor has it existed throughout the history of the world to deceive the nations. The Roman Catholic Church really didn't come to power until around about 500 AD. The seeds of it were sown before there, but really we get to about 500 AD before it really starts to um, take its current form as we recognise it. You see, the power that has dominated the nations predates Rome, and it goes all the way back to Babylon. And so, as we saw last time, 
And the issue here is that this false religious system that has turned people from the worship of God, symbolized by this woman, has been skillfully established by Satan since the time of the Tower of Babel, with one purpose, and that is to unite all mankind, reversing the effects of the Tower of Babel. You see, at the Tower of Babel, there were two things going on, as we've said. There was this intention for a political system, but also to bring everything together from a religious perspective. And Satan has been playing both sides of that. Of course, that's where the languages of the world got confused and so on from that point. But once mankind has been reunited again through this false religious system, Satan's not going to have any need for it anymore. Job done. And so that will be done away with, and then it will lead to the worship of Antichrist, as we've said already. So we now move on to the city, because we looked last time, and there's a lot mentioned about the woman. And as I said, this woman, Babylon in a sense, but clothed with Rome. Rome has been used of the the devil to effectively provide a home for this spiritual deception. And Rome and the Roman Catholic Church, I believe, will be that which is used to draw all of these religions and faiths together. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Jeremiah 50, 51, Isaiah 13 and 14, again we said, that all deal with the destruction of literal Babylon. And by the time we get to chapter 18, that hasn't yet taken place. Now Babylon has been inhabited throughout the ages. Now those verses, those passages up there, Jeremiah 50, 51, Isaiah 13 and 14, make it clear that when this destruction takes place, it will be complete. Cyrus, the great, makes it his capital. And then Alexander, following on some years afterwards, makes it his capital. Babylon doesn't get destroyed. In fact, even today, if you look in, this is just from Google Earth, you can go and you can look at the area of the Middle East, and this is looking, this is the coast of Israel here, the Mediterranean, uh, this is the Red Sea, or part of the Red Sea there, um, this is the, the Gulf uh, down here, you're familiar with, and this area, just see the circle there, this is modern day Iraq, we zoom in on this area here, just keep going down, and we've got Babylon. Okay, this is Babel. This is where we believe the remains of the Tower of Babel are. Uh, they used to build these ziggurats, but this was an extremely tall one, obviously with the intention of reaching heaven. That's what they were trying to do. Um, and then you can see all down here, just about see lots of civilization. This is the River Euphrates that was running past and going by. Uh, Babylon itself here. Now you've got here a number of different things. Um, there's a palace of Saddam Hussein. He was building um, before, obviously that was uh, cut short. Um, the palace of Nebuchadnezzar has been rebuilt and, uh, and so on. It was never fully destroyed, but it's been rebuilt. Again, Saddam Hussein was in the process of doing a lot of that. They've even had governmental meetings and things in these places. And again, just a little bit below that, this is all in the area known in the Bible as Shinar, this, this plain in Iraq. Uh, and this area here, this is Babel, where we seem, think, think the tower once was. You can see here, again, that's another, actually on Google Earth, if you go in and look at it, you actually see, uh, it's already been tagged as the Tower of Babel uh, is there. Um, but there's civilization, there's factories, and there's so on. It's clearly, this place has not been destroyed, it's not been wiped out. And yet the prophecies say that when Babylon is destroyed, it will be utterly destroyed. And uh, you can see, I mean, you can just about see cars here and car parks uh, and so on. A lot of industry going on in this area. This is a little bit further down the river. I mean, you can clearly see lots of uh, dwellings. There's a bridge here. You can just about see cars on the bridge and lots of buildings and factories and all sorts of things going on there. Now, just looking at this bridge, just to give you some idea, that's the bridge we just zoomed out again. Up here, this is not that far. That's just 4.11 miles from that point up to the Tower of Babel. Okay, Ancient Babylon was 15 miles square. So this all would have been encompassed in ancient 
Babylon. I'll just show you that because I want to just make the point that Babylon has never been destroyed, as the prophecies in Scripture say. Now, this was the verse that Peter read for us earlier. Now, you may have been listening and thinking, what is all that about? Because it's a kind of a strange prophecy. It's a vision of this woman in an ephah. An ephah is a, a, a measure. Uh, this, there, this idea is kind of the grain or so on. She's in this commercial thing. Uh, and the idea here is this prophecy suggests the return of this false religion to Babylon in the last days. We know it began there, but since then it's moved. It moved to Pergamos and then seemingly to Rome and so on. So she's kind of moved headquarters. But this prophecy, let's just look at it. I'm going to read this from the Living Bible. Now, the Living Bible is a paraphrase. In a a sense, it's a commentary on the Bible. But this is what J.B. Phillips translates this as. He says, Then the angel left me for a while. But the returner said, Look up. Something is travelling through the sky. What is it? I asked. He replied, It's a 35-litre basket filled with sin, prevailing everywhere throughout the land. But suddenly the heavy lead cover on the basket was lifted off and I could see a woman sitting inside the basket. He said, she represents wickedness. Now notice it's a female entity that's being depicted here, that's representing wickedness, that's prevailing, the sin has prevailed throughout the land. And he pushed her back into the basket and clamped down the lid, sorry, the heavy lid again. And it goes on and says, Then I saw two women flying toward us with wings like those of a stalk, and they took the 35-litre basket and flew off with it high in the sky. Where are they taking her? I asked the angel. He replied, To Babylon, where she belongs and where she will stay. Now this is the prophecy of some female entity that is depicted as wickedness being taken from wherever she is back to her base in Babylon. Now, A number of Bible commentators and scholars feel that this is a prophecy saying that this corrupt religious system, which will incorporate all religions, but probably headed up by the Roman Catholic Church, will in some way, in some measure, be taken back to literal Babylon in Iraq. Now, there are people that believe that Rome will remain where it is and Rome will carry on being so and there won't be a transfer of power back to Iraq. That may be the case. But I have to say, personally, I feel from Scripture, although it seems unlikely as we sit here this morning, I still feel that that's the case. You know, there's a number of Bible commentators that prior to 1948 have been consistent to the Word of God, and they said they believed that Israel would be re-established as a nation in their own land. And people laughed at them and they scoffed. So Robert Anderson is one. He wrote a fantastic book called The Coming Prince, which is really a study on Daniel chapter 9. And well before we get to the 19th century, 20th century, so on. You know, there were a number of people that were saying that Israel must return to their own land in Israel, in the Middle East. And a lot of people said it will never happen. And then, of course, 1948, it does. And suddenly people start to go, oh, I see how. Well, already, as I said, this place is being rebuilt. There were talks and suggestions some years ago of the United Nations using the facilities that were there. Well, you know how unstable... Iraq is at the moment. You know, it wouldn't take much for somebody to say, be it the UN, and then inviting religious groups to come and move in. All sorts of things could take place. This is the rebuilt Ishtar Gate in Babylon. These are pictures of the actual place itself. And again, that's the the, the temple and palace of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, This is is really quite quite huge in scale. Those those things are there today. So, you know, we'll wait and see, but I think we'll find that somehow, and however these things unfold, we're going to see this 
religious system be established there, which will embrace all the religions of the world. And then ultimately, it will be that that God will judge. So let's now look at the judgment. As we pick up verse 1 of chapter 18. After these things, John records, the number of times we have that, we have to always ask, what things? Well, after we've looked at mystery Babylon? No, no. We need to understand that we're not changing, as I said already, to now political Babylon, as some suggest. There is no such thing as mystery Babylon. Note what the text says. It's mystery, comma, Babylon the Great. That is what this judgment is referring to. That's what chapter 17 deals with, and that's what chapter 18 will continue to address. So the mystery simply denotes the spiritual influence that has existed and has been exerted throughout the ages since the Tower of Babel. So it's after the things of chapter 17 where this woman has been identified, this woman, this spiritual wickedness has been clothed with seemingly the colours of the Vatican. We carry on. Oh, actually, just to mention as well, one of the issues with suggesting that there's a political element in view here specifically is that John is invited to come and see the judgment of the great whore, but when we get to chapter 18, that's still not happened. So this has to be one continuous study as we go through. See, Babylon is seen both as a woman and as a city. And the idea is carried on in this chapter. The personal pronoun her is used 29 times. And the fact that we're viewing a literal city is alluded to at least 19 times. So we see that this is kind of one and the same thing. So after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power. I mean, bear in mind that first angel was the one of the ones that had the vials, his bowls of wrath. I mean, that seemingly was quite a great angel. But this one, John makes a specific point of saying, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Now, I'm not sure what that means. There are Bible commentators that think this may indicate some sort of uh, missile or nuclear exchange or something going on here. Now, well, again, these are speculations. That's trying to join the dots together with what information we have. And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen is fallen, and it's become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Now that's just an interesting thing, because throughout scripture, birds are often depicted as being bad things. If you remember the parables in Matthew 13, where it's the birds that come and snatch the seeds away, and there's a number of other occasions that you can point out and look at in scripture, even in the situation with the uh, the baker in uh, the account in Genesis, it's the birds that come and effectively uh, attack and peck at the uh, uh, the baker there. So yeah, they're often seen in a very negative light, um, and it's again seemingly uh, in Matthew 13, seeming the birds from what Jesus says are the, are the ministers of iniquity, and so everything that is bad, everything that is wrong, every kind of deception seemingly is caught up in this the destruction being spoken of. So now we're going to witness the destruction. That reference, by the way, fallen is fallen, it just implies suddenness. you know. And it's a kind of destruction that fits perfectly with what we read in in Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 15 and 51. Clearly has not yet occurred in the history of the world. And so there are already birds used to indicate workers of iniquity. Just going to read a couple of comments. These are from, from Isaiah 13. Uh, it says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, ecstasy, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited. Well, you've already seen this morning that it's inhabited still. 
Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Well, it is dwelt in. So these prophecies have not yet happened. Neither shall it um, be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch the tent there. And it goes on. It just speaks of the utter destruction that is going to be poured upon it. In Jeremiah 50, remove out of the midst of Babylon and go forth out of the land of the Chaldees and be as the he-goats before the flock. For lo, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country. Now, maybe that's a reference directly to the ten kings that we've already mentioned, that they're going to come. And they shall set themselves in array against her. Now, nothing historically matches that. We've never had an assembly of nations march against literal Babylon in Iraq with the intention of destroying her. This has to do with something that is yet future. And they shall set themselves in array against her from there she'll, she'll be, she shall be taken. And it goes on. He just talks of the utter destruction. It says, because of the wrath of the Lord, uh, it shall not be inhabited, but shall be wholly desolate. So, again, those scriptures, you can read those chapters and you'll see the, the language that's used speaks of a, a total destruction. Uh, again, Jeremiah 51, And I will render unto Babylon and to the inhabitants of Chaldea all their evil that they have done in Zion. In your sight, says the Lord. He says, I am against thee, O destroying mountain, says the Lord, which destroys the earth. And it goes on from there. Much you can read about in those other verses there, in those other portions of scripture. Let's carry on. Verse 3. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In other words, everybody has become intoxicated by her, by this spiritual deception that she's shown and, and sown, right the way from original Babylon through the history of the world, through the various different cultures that spread out around the world. Everybody's become intoxicated because of these things. And the merchants of the earth have waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Well, how much wealth has been generated through religion and through false religion? You know, people... Giving all sorts of money. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me, the people that give huge sums of money to some of these religious organizations. You know, we, we read of celebrities that, you know, donate huge sums to very questionable groups and things. You know, Madonna is one individual. Um, she got very much into Kabbalah and so on and was uh, offering all sorts of money and support to them and Tom Cruise. Is, you know, all these uh, you know, just different celebrities getting involved. But you know, there's so much money that's been generated through religion throughout the centuries. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plague. So a warning here, clearly given to anybody that is caught up in any of this deception to get out so that you don't become a partaker of her place. You don't experience the wrath that's going to be due to her. Now, the message is clear. to have nothing to do with this woman, this false religious system. But the question we need to ask is, who is the message to? Well, it's addressed to my people, so then anybody that will call themselves gods should take note. And the danger is that we might assume it's not for us and that we're not going to be deceived. That's a very dangerous position. The Bible speaks much about the danger of deception. Seven times in Scripture, God's people are warned to flee from her. They're the references. You can look at them later if you want to. Seven times in Matthew 24, Jesus warned of great spiritual deception in the last days that would lead many astray. Let me just say this as well, that when these things start to happen, People aren't going to look from the sidelines and go, oh, look, this, this is that Babylon thing. The Bible speaks, 
is going to seem so obvious, so natural, such a, a sensible step. You know, if somebody were to start to suggest that, you know, look, if somebody stepped onto the world scene and put a, an end to all the problems with ISIS, and all the other religious groups, and started to get everybody to work together, wouldn't they be seen as being a wonderful individual? You see, that's where we're going. That's what's going to happen. People are going to think this is such a great thing when it happens. Jesus speaks of these of this great spiritual deception and people getting drawn into it. In First Timothy, Paul says there, Now the Spirit speaks expressly, expressly that in the latter times some should depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Jesus warned of these false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. Jesus said, take heed that no one deceive you, no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I'm Christ. I shall deceive many. Now, we've had some loons that have uh, stepped onto the world scene and claimed they're Jesus and people ignore them but there will come people that will deceive many and many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many notice how times many is referred to here see when we see that Babylon signifies all false religion started in Babel we understand the cry to come out of her it's not just separating from one particular religious group or another it's anything that is unholy anything that is not of God so the world has committed fornication by getting involved with these religious systems. But to the believer to be entangled amounts to adultery. Paul said this of the church, of the believers. He said, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's what Paul speaks of the church as being. That we shouldn't be entangled and mixed up. With anything else, in 2 Timothy 2.4, again, Paul speaking, says, No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life, but that he may please him, i.e. Jesus, who has chosen him to be a soldier. See, there's a, a warning for us that we don't get mixed up in the things of this world. There's a lot of things going on, and even things that go under the banner of Christianity that are not of Christ, not of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 Picking up verse 14, he says, What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now just turning to Matthew 13 for a moment. This parable is, is given of this field in which there's wheat, and then an enemy comes when it's dark and nobody sees them and they, they sow these tares. Now the tares look just like the wheat. They grow up alongside them. They look identical. It's only at the time of the harvest you can tell the difference. And the difference is that in Israel, as you see these things growing together, at the time of the harvest, the wheat, because of the weight of the corn, will, 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 will droop its head. It bows its head. Whereas the tares stand upright. And there's a clear picture in that, speaking of the pride of the tares and the humility of the true wheat. Verse 28 of Matthew 13 says, He said unto them, because the disciples were asking, you know, you know why? why? Why has this happened? He said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Will there not that then that we go and gather them up? Should we, should we go and gather the tares? But he said to them, No. Listen, while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. And Jesus made this point. He said, Let both grow together until the harvest. 
And in the time of the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, gather you together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So, even amongst the Christian church, there is much that is ungodly, there is much that is not biblical, masquerades as Christianity. You know, you've only got to have a a cursory view on Christian television to see some of these things that are done, supposedly in the name of Christ. But Jesus says, look, there's a problem. We know that there's this problem. The wheat and the tares are there next to each other. But let both grow together. Because if you start pulling out the tares, you might damage the wheat as well. You know, we need to be careful sometimes. We need to warn people. If they're into religious groups and things and getting involved in... Every wind of doctrine, as Paul speaks about. But we need to be a little bit cautious that we don't start trying to pull everything up. Because at the time of the harvest, it's not really our job. Notice what's going to happen. God is going to send in the angels, the reapers. And their job is to gather together first the tares and bind them in bundles. Now this is interesting because they're going to be bound together. Now, I think it's fascinating in the days in which we live. Because we're seeing, um, within the Christian church, these groups being pulled together. We've got those seeker-friendly churches, those emerging churches, all those different labels that get put on things. And they're all getting bound together in bundles. And the, the warning here is that they'll be bound together in bundles to burn them. How? How are they going to be burnt? Well, I think because they'll become part of this world system, part of this, this religious system. And ultimately then they will be subject to this destruction that we're looking at in chapter 18. But notice what happens to the wheat. It's a beautiful picture of the rapture. The wheat will be gathered into Christ's barn. What a lovely picture for those that have put their trust in Jesus, that are following him, that are sticking to and reading his word. You see, let me just summarize what we see in Matthew 13. The church is a mixed bag. Now, of course, we've got other religions, and we'll put that to one side for a second, but even within the church, there's some good, there is some bad. At the time, or the season of the harvest, I believe that's a reference to the rapture, the angels are going to separate the good and the bad. Bad are gathered into bundles, then the good gathered into Christ's barn. Bad are then cast into a furnace. And I think that's a reference, again, to the tribulation, and specifically, chapter 18, to be burned. Matthew 7, just speaks, it says, verse 21, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? If you saw somebody prophesying, wouldn't you think they're a believer? And in your name, cast out devils. Surely that's a good thing, isn't it? And in the name, done many wonderful works. Notice what Jesus says. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. So who are those people? They're false converts. They've got an outward show of religion. They prophesy. They display supernatural powers. They do many good works. They were in the church, but they were not in Christ. And that's the big fundamental difference. Jeremiah chapter 1, we just read there, For lo, I will call the families and the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, and they shall come and they shall set everyone his throne at the entering in of the gates of Jerusalem and against all the walls thereof round about and against all the cities of Judah. And notice this, And I will utter my judgment against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, and have worshipped the works of their hands. A number of times I've done a, a two separate one-hour teachings just looking through Jeremiah at the parallels with what's going on in the Christian church today, or so-called Christian church. See, there's a, there's a warning here. This was at the time of 
back in Jeremiah's day, prior to the Babylonian captivity and so on, that they were forsaking God and they were getting into burning incense to other gods. Well, this is just one church or one religious group. They've got a whole bunch of things they do. Now, this is their changing church in a changing culture. And the idea is we should move forward with the times. This particular church do a whole bunch of things. Word-based, okay, such as poems, prayers, meditations, song lyrics, incantations, chants, responses. Oh, straight away we're getting way outside of the guidelines of Scripture. Symbol-based, these are the things they use in their worship. On video, scripture, paper, gesture, dance, and artifacts. Action-based, it goes on, all sorts of things they do there. Uh, writing, praying, loud singing, walking around, mime, body sculpture, circus arts, juggling, fire breathing. Really? Soul-based ingredients, backing tracks, background music, sound effects. All these just things is this listing here. Uh, amongst it, they've got praying and Bible reading, but they're kind of not big on that, are they? Um, meditations are listed. Vision-based ingredients, so videos, projections, sculptures, all sorts of things. Uh, Imagination-based, guided fantasies, thinking, drawing, composing in real time, meditations, praying, and so on. And then the bottom one here, other things, anointing, laying on of hands, incense, holding stones and other natural objects, molding clay, hand-washing. You know, there are churches that will call themselves Christians that are doing those things today. And people are getting caught up in it. Like I said, that individual earlier that's going to a church in London, it's a famous church, it's a well-known church, and they're getting to all sorts of things. It's a very lovely environment. People enjoy it. People go there because they feel comfortable. And they do all sorts of wonderful things, and people are made to feel very good about themselves. The Bible says that amongst the true church, there are tares that are bringing deception. And I believe all of these will migrate into this coming world system. Jeremiah 2, verse 8, I'm not going to go through all of these because we could spend, as I say, hours looking at the parallels. But the priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and worked after things, walked after things that do not profit. Well, if that's not a description of the church today, I don't know what is. And then Jeremiah 8, 9. The wise men are ashamed, they're dismayed and taken low. They've rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. One of the leading Christian speakers in this country some years ago, I got the opportunity to speak to him and I challenged him about something he said. And he made the statement to me about Genesis and so on. He said that the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis were just Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. This is a man that many people would respect and would listen to and he's been on television and all sorts of things. Hebrew poetry, pending Babylon. That's what he says of the word of God. I mean, it's nonsense. Just historically, we know that the, the, the scriptures existed way before Babylon. It's just, just such a stupid comment. And yet, they've rejected the word of the Lord. And God says, if they reject the word of the Lord, they have no wisdom. For her sins have reached unto heaven, verse 5 of chapter 18 again. And God has remembered her iniquities. You see, the whole point of this, that Satan's been trying to do, is deceive people. It's great spiritual deception. It looks good, sounds good, but isn't it kind of a little bit ironic here that back at Babel they wanted to build a city whose tower and whose top may reach into heaven. Well, they get to reach heaven, but they do it because of their sin. Her sins have reached unto heaven. Reward her even as she rewarded you and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. Double it means an exact likeness, repaying exactly what she's meted out. In terms of the deception, all this is going to be given back to her in judgment. 
Verse 7, how much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she says in her heart, I sit a queen and I'm no widow. And she shall see no sorrow. Now that is a, a deliberate taunt. This comes actually from um, uh, Jeremiah. We see the, the reference there. But also in Lamentations, there's a, a, a contrast to this because it speaks of Jerusalem. It says, how does the city Jerusalem, that's, that is, sit solitary? That was full of people. How has she become as a widow? That she was great among the nations and a princess among the provinces. How has she become a tributary? So Jerusalem, because of their disobedience, disobedience to God, have become as a widow. And so this false religious system now boasts and says, I'm no widow, I'm a queen. And of course, another title that's given, uh, and it's used of Mary, it's used of other deities and so on, the Queen of Heaven is another title. Roger Oakland and others have done a lot of research and study and uh, very interesting insights into the things that are going on around the world, the the manifestations of these so-called female deities and these individuals. Many people in the Catholic Church believe it to be Mary, but it's a deception once again. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. I just want to make a quick comment on that because I just want to try and, as best I can, help you realize that we look at these things and they may see far, seem far-fetched or, you know, how would this happen really? But I believe God has given us a number of things over recent years to illustrate just how real these things are. Could a system like this that's been established really be destroyed in one day? Well, just think of what happened on September the 11th, 2001, the Twin Towers. Who would have thought that something of that scale could occur in just short, such a short space of time? And as I said the other week, a lot of people, when they read that Babylon is fallen, is fallen, they immediately drew a connection to the Twin Towers, and for reasons we said, and I don't think that's, that's legitimate. But the point is, I think it highlights the fact that a destruction on that scale could easily occur in the days in which we live. Death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord who judges her. And the kings of the earth, who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her. Now notice that the kings of the earth, the majority of them, are going to really be sad about this. It's the ones, it's the ten kings under Antichrist that will destroy her. But the other kings are going to be sad. They'll lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. There's a lot more in the study notes that will accompany this session this morning that you can read through if you want to look into this deeper. But verse 10 carries on, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. You see, the ten kings under Antichrist are going to get to the stage, they cannot allow this religious system to continually ride upon their backs, as we saw in the previous chapter. Her influence has become so great, she must be destroyed. And so that's what will happen. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buying their merchandise anymore. Again, all about the money and the wealth and all sorts of things. And again, just to highlight, there are a number of Bible commentators that think that all of this will be dealt with in some sort of uh, um, military uh, assault, be it nuclear exchange or whatever else, that's just going to wipe out this city. And the merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and 
vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. Just tucked in at the end there. But that's what her trade has been in. And the fruits that thou hast lusted after are departed from thee. And all things which are dainty and goodly are departed from thee. And thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. You know, the money that has been made, not just because of the religious practices and people that got into it, as I said earlier, but you just think of the the arms that have been shipped around the world because of religious tension and conflicts. You know, you can think back to the tensions and the troubles in Northern Ireland. How many people made huge sums of money with all the armaments that were made and shipped and used, and then every successive religious war since. See, religion is a really good business for a lot of people in the world. And the more conflict and tension for many, the better, because there's a lot of money to be made in all these things, and they're going to weep when they see the destruction. Just talking about the wealth, the Catholic Church boasts over a billion members, but this one more church will be so huge and by now controlling so much of the world's economy that the ten kings will have to get rid of her. Trade on earth is going to change dramatically from this point as we move from separate democracies to a dictatorship under Antichrist. And saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Again, doesn't that just speak to you of the Vatican as we know it and the influence that the Roman Catholic Church has had? Again, all wrapped up in this, this system. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off. People will be stunned when this takes place. Now, I just want to read a couple of comments here from Dave Hunt's book, A Woman Rise the Beast. He says, The Roman Catholic Church is by far the wealthiest institution on earth. The value of innumerable sculptures by such masters as Michelangelo, paintings by the world's greatest artists and countless other art treasures which Rome possesses, not only at the Vatican but in cathedrals around the world, is beyond calculation. At Lourdes, in France, it was recently reported that in one location alone, 59 solid gold chalices, rings, crucifixes, statues, heavy gold brooches, many encrusted with precious stones. The crown of Notre Dame de Lourdes that was made by a Paris goldsmith in 1876 and is studded with diamonds, were found. These items are of inestimable value. And all of that, of course, is in very stark contrast to what Jesus told his disciples. He said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. See, just before Jesus had taught his, before saying that, Jesus had taught his disciples that they were not to lay up treasures on earth, but rather to lay up treasure in heaven where it will have eternal value. I mean, how can we get a religious system that is so wealthy when that was never our mandate? And so these merchants, these people that are trading at sea, we read, and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour she is made desolate. This is going to be A sudden strike. I mean, we live in an age where that kind of destruction can easily occur within one hour. You think of the the forces that are amassed by the powers of the world today, and you've got these ten kings which represent clearly the 
the, the power of the world. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Now bear in mind, we're not just talking of the Roman Catholic Church, but all religious systems throughout the history of the world that have been opposed to God and to God's people. How many Christians have been put to death because of these other religious systems? And the mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and the pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of the candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants with the great men of the earth for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her, in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. So it kind of all ends where it begins. The prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, that's what we just looked at there as well, all being fulfilled. What started, I believe, on that plane in Shinar in Iraq almost four and a half thousand years ago as a satanic attempt to deceive mankind will be ended. God will use these ten kings to destroy this system. And Satan won't object to it because he knows that by moving this system out of the way, it will lead to the worship of Antichrist. You know, his plan has effectively succeeded. He intended to bring about huge spiritual confusion. And that's what's happened. That's why we have so many religions in the world. Countless numbers have been led astray. And just as Satan had attempted originally at Babel, His man is now poised to take center stage as the last three and a half years of the tribulation from this point would then kick in. That brings us to the end of the study through these two chapters. As I say, I'll put the study notes accompanying this in the email and up online. So if you want to dig into it a bit deeper, there's more information there. You know, we live in a really fascinating time as we start to see these things start to unfold around us. You know, and almost every day there's a newspaper headline or internet headlines somewhere that just reveals a little bit more of of the, the steps that have been taken to move us to this place. So we need to be discerning. We need to keep reading scripture and watch these things unfold. But you know, Jesus said that when you begin to see these things, look up because your redemption draws nigh. And that's our great hope. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that It reveals to us, Lord, things that maybe we'd rather not dwell on or think on. But, Father, the reality is that saints throughout the ages have been martyred. Your people have been killed. And Satan has done a wonderful job of deceiving mankind. And, Lord, it's important for us to know. It's important for us to realize. And, Lord, in the days in which we live, to do whatever we can, to reach out to anybody we can, to warn them. To let them know that there is salvation in only one name, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. He is the name above all names, the name to which every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Father, thank you for these things we have in your word. Thank you that your word tells us they were given that we might know what is coming to pass. But Lord, we also thank you that in seeing these things begin to unfold and happen in the days in which we live, We can lift up our heads and look because our redemption is drawing nigh. Lord, it won't be long 
until you come and take us and we are with you and we will see you face to face. Lord, give us just great excitement. Lord, may that hope be real and tangible in our lives. Lord, that this world is not our home. We are citizens of heaven and we're looking forward to going home. So we say, come Lord Jesus. We just thank you for this morning. Be with us. Keep us safe and keep us close to you, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.